From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. You guys, I just want to say, do you know how you know that you have an awesome in-studio co-host? How's that? Uh, I mean, Zach, you're great too, but <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a Joanna problem. Pro- they bring you espresso to make you even more wired than you already were. <laughs> I can't wait to go today. I'm just really feeling it. Like, let's, you know, Joanna's downstairs at the at the coffee shop on the corner under our offices, and she just slacks me. Adam, do you need espresso? And I was like, yeah, let's do this. I figured I'd check. Yeah. Just in case. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah, so uh, how are you guys doing? Good. Doing good. We got the gang back together. It's been, it feels like it's been a little while. Yeah, it does. I mean, we had, we had a Friday, then we missed Monday, now we have Friday. Yeah. You know? That's true. Yeah. It was a week off. Mm-hmm. I know it was hard. Uh, what are you guys? What are you reading, Zach? Uh, you sure, get to go I'll first, go first this, this time, time so mm-hmm. no one can steal my yeah, articles this week. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. no one can steal your articles. I think actually one of the things that I really enjoyed, which is I guess technically a little over a week ago, but I will say I read it in the last week because it's true, was uh, Josh Bernstein's piece about uh, import beers being brewed in the U.S. And I thought this was a really interesting piece because we had touched on this when we talked about whatever the hell was going on uh, with Anchor Brewing and Sapporo yeah. and why they like seemed to not be aware that when they purchased Anchor that they wouldn't be able to brew Sapporo there and subsequently purchased Stone and now can Bruce Sapporo in the U.S. more easily. But it was interesting to think about how, you know, for a lot of the import beers or, you know, at least non-U.S. beers that are now being brewed domestically, it does kind of give you an opportunity to see a kind of uh, other side of these breweries and beers that we've seen as monoliths because often the one, you know, sort of beer that's brewed that is imported or exported or whatever is the only thing you ever see. And, you know, imports have their own challenges you know it's not always great for the beer to be shipped around the world etc so just interesting to kind of think about that think about kind of the way in which you have this you know beer this kind of ongoing conversation that's now happening not just you know around the world but happening even within the united states between these other brewing traditions and you know some of these very large uh, beers and brewing companies as they interact more directly with the american market and respond to it so that's interesting piece yeah cool what about you adam so one of the ones that I've I was really interested in was one that's going to frame our larger conversation today, which was about sort of the chase for proof or still being still proof mm-hmm. uh, in tequila and how that's winning over the hearts and minds of bourbon drinkers. And I think that's, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a second. Yeah. I also am just always interested in sort of how brands are finding new audiences. And I thought Jake's piece about sort of whiskey brands Whiskey tourism. Yeah, yeah. Locating now just, you know, their sort of their stores and that in other cities as well as in downtown locations, not making you come mm-hmm. to the distillery was really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, again, it's just sort of proof that people will go to these places even when they're not in the place where they're distilled. Talk a lot about um, Elijah Craig going to London. Yeah, I was going to say which one. Yeah, that, that's so interesting really to me. Interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. What about you? Okay, well, mine is one that neither of you have read, but will be live as people are listening to this episode. Okay, okay. <laughs> Joanna, just out here cheating. Come on. <laughs> She's like, Here's how no one will steal my yeah. article. Yeah. Um, we uh, have a piece on the site about how Bollywood has um, influenced wine drinking culture in India um, by a writer, Henna Bakshi, um, which I thought was super interesting. I know people who are into Bollywood are really into Bollywood. Um, it's never been something I've... 
I haven't really watched much at all, but um, this piece was just really interesting to me about, you know, the perception of wine has really evolved um, and become more mainstream and more acceptable in Indian culture. And that's been largely reflected in Bollywood and in TV shows as well. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to read it since I can't because it's <laughs> the day before. So thanks, Cheater. <laughs> so let's get into this conversation. So Aaron sort of started, you know, lays this out there, but it's it's something that's been happening a lot, which is is really a phenomenon of bourbon that now you're seeing elsewhere, which is the desire for people to consume a spirit as strong as humanly possible, <laughs> basically, right? So like and, – and I think this gets into a larger idea that we as Americans – seem to be obsessed with when it comes to food and drink, mm-hmm. which is this idea. And I think that this idea. Well, some. No, I think most people. What about our no and low people, Adam? No. I think when it comes to food and drink, <laughs> wait till I get there. Wait till I, I got to okay, land okay, the okay, plane. Sorry. Sorry. Because you're going to agree with me. <laughs> I think that Americans have this obsession with authenticity. And I think that authenticity is such a, you know, squishy word in that like, no one can really define what authentic is. Sure. But as Americans, I think maybe it's because we're a nation of immigrants. We want the most authentic thing possible, right? Like for a while in dining, let's take just Italian cuisine for an example because uh, I'm going to Italy next week and I'm ex- – you know, like we rejected authentic Italian-American cuisine for authentic Italian cuisine, right? The coolest thing in New York – what a decade ago was basically only restaurants that were doing dishes that are the same dishes you would eat in Rome or the same dishes you would eat in Lazio, Piedmont region, etc. Mm-hmm. And now we've returned back to now our obsession with Italian authenticity goes back to like, no, no, now we want the the dishes that had been created by Italian immigrants, but only if it was like the 50s and 60s and like the era of the Rat Pack. Mm-hmm. Like that's this authenticity obsession that we have as Americans and – you see this very clearly in bourbon. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is that people want to drink the liquid as close to the way it is, it is when it comes out of the barrel as possible. That's the most authentic way the bourbon can be consumed. That anything else is sort of watered down, right? When you When you bring it down, when you lower the proof, that must not be the authentic bourbon. That is now a watered-down version of whatever it was when everyone else was tasting as it was being distilled. That's the way that I sort of see huh. what's happening here. And the taters, who have really ruined a good nickname that I used to have. People called you tater? Yeah, growing up. Tater. <laughs> Which, it was the South. As in Adam Tater or Tater Teeter? I used to be called Tater. I used to be called <laughs> Tater Tot. I used okay. to also be called Adam Tater. Yeah, it was the South, guys. I don't know what to tell you. And I never accepted it, but now like I lovingly look back. I used to hate it. I used to hate it. Teeter-tot. But yeah, (laughs) tater. Really ruined it. Yeah, and so the roommate that I had with Josh and uh, I in college used to call me tater. He used to think it was hilarious. Yeah. Anyways, that was a way crazy tangent. I didn't know this. Wow. Okay. I've, I've, I've held this in for long enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Thank you for feeling like this is a safe space. I did. I share I did. With us. For myself and all of our listeners. Anyways, uh, so as I was saying, I I think that that's why we've seen this in bourbon. And it's it's been a slow creep, right? First it was, oh, we just want, we just want the, you know, the barrel. I just want the barrel. 
Now we want that. Then we want barrel proof. Now we want to know the exact rick house it came from in the floor. It's all authenticity. It's huh. all this quest for authenticity. And so, as a way to sort of go after these same drinkers, some people in spirits have realized that they too can play this game. You know, I think what we had seen and what Aaron discusses in the piece was that in the early days, the way that a lot of other people chased whiskey drinkers, a lot of other spirits categories, was just oaking it. They must like oak, let's oak it. Mm-hmm. And now what's really interesting is especially what we're seeing in tequila is that the producers are realizing that what people actually want is the purity. And so what is pure about bourbon is not what comes off the still. What is pure about bourbon is what comes out of the barrel. Right. Right. That is authentic. And then the way that that spirit tastes and the ABV that spirit is when it comes out of the barrel is authentic. What is authentic about tequila is not how tequila comes out of the barrel mm-hmm. because we now have lots of different literature and people that have you know espoused on how the barrel actually ruins lots of tequila. Right, It kind of masks the traditional flavors of the agave. What is authentic is how the tequila comes off the still. Right. And so now people are really obsessed with these still-strength tequilas. And it is capturing the hearts and minds of taters. Oh, man. I can't believe I told you guys that. <laughs> and I don't know how I feel about it because you know what, man? I can't drink barrel and still strength shit. It's ruining spirits for me. <laughs> it's interesting to me, Adam, that you attribute all of this to sort of a quest for authenticity. Me I too. Think that's, I agree. That's part of it. But I think that one piece of it is that there is a sort of implicit mostly occasionally explicit argument being made that if you're buying your spirits and whiskey maybe in particular at you know 80 or 85 proof or whatever you're getting cheated because like you're paying for all that water and like you can water it down yourself to a maybe maybe there's some sort of validity to the notion that like you might want it diluted back to a slightly different percent than the distillery decides but also like i think about the big controversy that came out a number of years ago with Maker's Mark, where basically to meet demand, they were like, we're lowering the proof of Maker's Mark so we basically can have more. And they eventually got enough pushback that they decided not to do that. But like, I, I think there is a way in which people look at, you know, people who are a little more in the know, be they taters or not, that they look at something that comes out of the, you know, barrel proof or still proof or whatever as being, they're getting the most bang for their buck. And in the case of tequila, like, if you get it at 110 proof, which is the highest legal yeah. proof that you can sell tequila at, you feel like you're getting more tequila for your dollar, even if that bottle costs more than a than a bottle coming out at 80 or whatever proof. The other piece of it is I think that in addition to authenticity, where you see it especially in whiskey, but I think you're starting to see it with tequila too, is what people are clamoring for is I would say more specificity than authenticity. And that's where like the fetishization of single barrel or individual Rick houses or all of these special bottlings comes in where like, whereas a decade or two ago, it was enough to have, Oh, you know, you had, you bought Eagle rare or something that most people hadn't heard of. and wasn't widely available. Now all of that stuff is out in the market, widely available. And now you need the special bottlings, the older bottlings, mm-hmm. anything that gives you more point of differentiation. Cause that's what collecting is about, right? I mean, we all saw this. We've seen this with a bunch of other things. I mean, I saw it with baseball cards when I was a kid, right? When, you know, when I first started getting into baseball cards, there were like three card companies and they put out one set of cards each year. And by now, every card company puts out like 500 different kinds of cards every year because they know some people will buy them. And 
I think that is kind of what we're seeing. And I don't know if that that is incompatible with a quest for authenticity, but I think it's, I think there are other things besides just a quest for authenticity, because I think if it was about authenticity and tequila, people would not be looking for a tequila that people in Mexico don't really drink. Right. No, but, but again, what I'm saying is this is again, why authenticity is squishy and why I think I'm 100% right. Because we, (laughs) because we don't understand what is authentic as Americans. Mm -hmm. So we've decided what is authentic is what comes off the fucking still. Yeah. They don't drink that because people in Mexico don't want to be on their asses. And, they drink sessionably. They drink tequila sessionably, and so they get it proofed down. Yeah, proofed down. But when we've tried to, like, <clears throat> if if you told the majority of American consumers, especially the people that are that are trying to buy these tequilas, what the authentic tequila was to drink for most Mexicans who are well to do, they wouldn't drink it because it's Don Julio, and they think of Don, and like that is what is the the premium tequila that is the most drank in Mexico is Don Julio. Right. They but they don't think that Don Julio now is authentic. In the way, you know, we put our own definitions on this. That's why I think it's so stupid that Americans are obsessed with it, and that's why because I think this whole I think this whole thing is stupid. <laughs> so, and and that's that's how I'm working it out in my mind. But again, well, okay, so I think I agree with both of you, but I also think there's another component of this, and and maybe for people who are interested in still strength tequila, they're saying it's a they're saying they're after authenticity, but I think with this and with the cask strength and barrel strength and these really high proof spirits, there's a certain element of like bravado attached to it. Like no, no, you know, Adam, you were saying earlier today that you don't like to drink those types of spirits because you can't have more than just one. Yeah. Okay. But like for people who love these types of spirits, isn't it like a show of their, you know, strength and bravado if they can, if they only drink cast strength and they only like tequila, you know, still strength. I think that's a really big part of of bourbon right now um, in particular, but also as it's kind of the the culture of drinking bourbon and the taters, as we like to say, um, spilling over into tequila as well. Like, I think that is a big part of it, too. And I also agree with Zach about the differentiation, right? It's like, if anybody can get it, I mean, we see this with so many things. If everybody can get it, then it's not cool anymore. Right. I want the next thing that's, like, less available to more people that I can brag about for having and for doing and for drinking. Yeah. I think that your point about the bravado is a very smart one. And I think it's why probably the majority of people buying these are men. You know, it is this idea, yes, that like, I can handle it, which I also think is stupid because I can't. Okay, but also, okay, yes, there's the bravado part, but we've also heard from so many bartenders, right? Like when when their spirits get proofed down and then bottled, like, what is it that, what is it, beef eater? Yes. That one, um, you know, like, oh, it's worse. Like, it's better if it's higher proof. Right, Tim, we always hear that. Tim has that opinion of a lot of the spirits he tastes. Yeah, I just—it's funny. In wine, we become obsessed with proof coming down, and in spirits, we become obsessed with proof going up. Mm-hmm. But see, I think the reason for that is uh, to give people—you know—some of these people at least some benefit of the doubt. There is there is no. something to the idea that <laughs> I know. How dare we have nuance? That in spirits, in particular. The higher the proof, the more flavor yes. is yes, getting conveyed, yeah, right? True. I mean, alcohol is such a good conveyance of a lot of the flavors we're looking for, whether it's in whiskey or tequila or whatever. And for bartenders, I think there is a way in which the desire to have a spirit, whether it is gin or tequila or whiskey, where 
more of those flavors come through even in in a cocktail format. So mm-hmm. if you think about, you know, like if you think about America's relationship with the margarita over the years from sort of wanting a drink that was had as little agave flavor as possible, which is why like a lot of them were made with mixed tequilas and were heavily sweetened and things like that. So that, you know, it was a way to get drunk without really tasting the tequila. You were getting just, you know, lime, orange, salt, whatever to now maybe using some of these higher proof tequilas and an attempt to carry more of that agave flavor, more of the roasted agave into the drink. I don't think that's totally ignoble. I think there's something to the idea that like, whether it's a, a you know, a Navy strength gin, an overproof uh, rum, et cetera, that you can in cocktail presentations, get more of that flavor of the of the distilled spirit into the drink than you can with something that sits on the shelf at 80, at 80 proof. Now, F- flavor and texture, I think. And texture too, yeah, yeah it's a great point. And that like I said, is that the thing you want to sip by you know neat? Well, maybe some people, but I tend to agree with Adam that I'm not interested really in 110 or 115 proof sipping spirit, but I see the application in cocktails. It's also the other piece of this is that you end up with this really kind of convoluted feedback loop where bartenders get hot on something because it does work well in cocktail applications, especially certain ones. And it sort of weirdly becomes, you know, sort of filtered out to the public, especially the sort of spirits, nerd, tater, whatever public as like, oh, this is the best bottle to have for any any context, regardless of whether you would enjoy having it on its own, right? And And so much of what people are buying these for now is perhaps to sip on its own, even if maybe the proper application would be in a cocktail like a margarita. Yeah, I think people glom onto that for sure. <laughs> yeah. But I have a question for the two of you that this prompted for me, okay. which is, you know, this, this, so we're talking about, you know, here still a relatively small number of these tequilas yes. that are being produced and coming out at still strength. You know, I think, uh, I think Aaron cites like a, you know, 10 or 12 of them in total. Do we, do we think that it's, reasonable to expect uh, a great, you know, a significant uptick in these that that the success that a few of these have found in, you know, relatively small communities at this point will spur further focus on this particular category. And, and along with that, because I always think about this with tequila, because the agave is, if it's not quite a, you know, it's not quite a zero sum game when you move agave around, but because of just the realities of growing it, it's not as easy to make a lot more tequila as as it is to make a lot more of other spirits in most cases. Do we think that maybe some of the tequila, some of the agave and some of the distillate that was maybe going to be intended to be put into barrels for, you know, producing añejo or extra añejo is instead going to be more intended at these other expressions that also maybe capture the the whiskey loving market because it, there's no doubt that tequila it, you know th- some tequila companies some brands etc see in you know continued potential to if not eat into whiskey's market share at least capture the same drinkers who love whiskey do we think that this is going to be a truly successful way for them to do that yes and i think you're going to see a lot of people continue to do it and copy because they very much want so okay, do I think that I'm going that you're going to see you know the bigger producers like you know the Jose Cuervos et cetera do this? Not as much, maybe. I think in time, in time, yeah, probably last. But I think all of the big like indie cool kids are 100 percent going to do this because this is how they're going to continue to grow their market share. It's going to be something that shows that they're aware of market trends. Mm-hmm. I do think that there are a lot of distillers 
in Mexico, you know, Joanna and I know some of them who, when you ask them what their favorite tequila style of tequila is, they will all tell you Blanco. They will all tell you that's the only kind of tequila that yeah. they drink. A lot of them don't like making the other styles of tequila. They do it for other markets, but like they drink Blancos because that's historically what you would drink in Mexico. Uh, same as for Mezcal, right? You're gonna, also, I think you're going to see, you know, still strength, obviously, in Mezcal as well. Sure. You see that more currently, anyways. Yeah. But I think. 100% you're going to see more of this uh, because you have you saw what happened when there was one or two people who were going straight out of the barrel at barrel proof in whiskey, in bourbon, and then how it just exploded. And now it really is almost everybody. Like if you have a high-end bourbon, it better be at the highest proof it can possibly be. Or it's not going to sell as well. It's mm-hmm. not going to have the obsession of the market that it would it should have. I think – you know, that's just who those bourbons are now for. And this is going to be the same for tequila. Like the the aficionados are going to look for tequila in what they consider to be its purest form possible, which is where they have full control. And that's I mean, that's the argument that everyone always gives to me when I say I don't love all these like barrel strength, which is like, well, you can prove it down yourself. I'm like, but I don't want to, man. Right. I don't want to. <laughs> like it's just, you know, but there mm-hmm. are obsessives that want to do that. You know, they want to take the Blanco, and as you're saying with the bartenders as well, they want to be able to use less of it. They want to be able to have more flavor with it, et cetera, but they want to be able to proof it down themselves. And I don't know, man. I'm not a distiller. I'm not a blender. Like, you do it for me, okay? But I I get where people are coming from with this, and that's why I think it's going to continue to be super, super popular. Yeah, I think it's just like, you know, in Aaron's piece, uh, he mentions that it seems like this would be favored for cocktail makers. And I'm assuming that means bartenders, but it's really, you know, meant for or remains a neat drinking spirit is how how he puts it. Um, So I think it is, I think it's interesting. Obviously the Fortaleza expression is nowhere to be found, right? Because of Fortaleza. But I think it will be interesting to see how well these other brands sell. And if they are selling you know, among the trade versus just consumers. Yeah. And I think that will that will tell us whether or not this becomes like, you know, every tequila brand has this expression. Right. I, I think it's going to be interesting to follow because, again, people, anyone who's a producer chases basically, for the most part, wants to increase sales and chase trend. And if this is what it seems like the market wants, then they're going to give the market what they want. Yeah. Well, and, and to just ask one more question to kind of follow up on that, because I think it's it's very relevant. Do we feel like we have perhaps passed the sort of point of peak barrel aged tequila, or do we still feel like there's a lot of growth potential there? Because I, I, I honestly don't know. I've always felt like it was an odd marriage that made a certain kind of sense, but was a not didn't have a lot of historical tradition in, in Mexico past Reposado. Yeah. And also just was like, a, what if whiskey, but tequila is a weird sort of like that's a weird marketing pitch in my eyes always has been so i I don't know do you do you guys get the sense that like that side of the tequila market is waning or is it remain you know very popular because obviously a few of them are very i think it will become it will stay very popular for the nightlife high energy nightlife setting okay i think in that setting that demographic of people who enjoy high energy nightlife and bottle service 
like a very smooth spirit, regardless of what it is, right? It's the spirit of the of the day, right? So at one point it was high energy, smooth vodka and Grey Goose. Then it moved to cognac and Hennessy, and that now mm-hmm. we're seeing it move to to you know Casa Azul and 1942 and things like that. Um, that's where it will stay popular. But I think the majority of tequila drinkers will move towards the Blanco style. I think that's what you're seeing even now. Because, again, that is what is going to start being seen more and more by people as being authentic. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the the only thing that you know we always have to remember is the we are definitely the biggest market and the most powerful market. I was told by someone at a uh, from one of the big spirits companies recently that like if you get a cold in the U.S., your whole business gets a disease. Basically, meaning if your mm-hmm. numbers go down, just because the U.S. market is such a uh, heavily heavy consumption market, but I do I do see the popularity on with the bartenders I follow in Europe of still really liking the barrel aged tequilas, but they're behind us. Mm-hmm. So who knows if like you know us <clears throat> moving much more strongly towards the blancos changes their taste and uh, what they're looking for on the whole writ large. But like again, I think for the most part, yeah, we're gonna in the same way that bourbon's going higher and higher proof and becoming authentic out of the barrel, this is going to become much more about the Blancos because the people that produce the stuff are saying that that's what's authentic. And I also think that tequila is ever aware of Mezcal nipping at its heels and basically saying tequila isn't the true spirit of Mexico we are. And Mm -hmm. they're basically, there's not a lot, there are some people making barrel-aged Mezcals, but for the most part, they're coming out as pure Blancos at still strength in a lot of places and tequila needs to keep up to, to stay top dog. Interesting. Let us know what you think. Uh, let us know if you drink these kind of spirits. Uh, I just drink two and hit the floor. I just, you know, it's <laughs> too much. We'll talk about that on Monday. Anyways, everyone have a great time. See you Monday. Talk to you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.